Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, I'm pleased to say I'm speaking to Francis Chan. Francis is a popular Christian speaker who is currently planting churches in the Bay Area of San Francisco, California. He's the author of many books, including Crazy Love and most recently Letters to the Church, published by David C. Cook. Francis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good good to be with you. Sorry if my uh, throat sounds horrible. I've been sick for the last few days. Uh, Sorry to hear that. I hope you feel better soon. And you're recovering. I mean, I guess you're in sunny San Fran right now. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah, it's sunny today. It's it's rarely sunny, but today it's nice. Very good. Now, I get the impression from a lot of what you've said and written in the past um, that I guess you've been quite critical. I think, you know, many would say quite rightly of the kind of celebrity culture that can sometimes creep into the church. And sometimes we end up sort of lauding particular preachers. And I know you've, you've kind of battled with that yourself. So, you know, do you kind of find this this interview format in itself a little bit awkward at times? Well, yeah, I mean, sadly, I've almost gotten used to it, you know, because it happens so often. But I I think the key to me is how can I somehow use whatever platform the Lord has placed me in and bring glory to him and turn the direction to everyone who's listening to recognize there's a holy God watching us right now who is keeping us alive and keeping our thoughts afresh. Well, um, with that in mind, here on the show, we always like to hear right from the outset some of a person's testimony. And I know the story of your life growing up is is really quite remarkable. Tell me a bit about your, your childhood. Well, it, yeah, it was quite different, I would say. My, my mother died when she gave birth to me, and then my dad remarried, and then my stepmother died when I was around seven or eight years old. She died in a car accident. My dad got married again, and then my dad died of cancer when I was 12, and so as a child burying my parents, uh, it really got me thinking about, I mean, first of all, it's terrifying as a child to watch your mother and your father put into the ground, um, having nightmares about that and wondering who's next, am I next? This, this life ends so quickly, but it got me focused on what happens afterwards because this, this life is just too short too unpredictable. And so it was in my high school years, in my early teens, that I began to pursue God and and I found him, or I, I could say he was pursuing me. And and uh, and that's when I fell in love with Jesus. So I guess, you know, with that, you know, terrible background and, and childhood of difficulty, and as you say, growing up around so much death, it, it led you to ask, I guess, the big questions from an earlier age, perhaps than some other people would even um, come into contact with those big questions of life and death. Yeah. I mean, you know, while my friends are doing their sports and playing their video games, like I have big thoughts in my mind. And I I look back and I'm so grateful for that because it caused me to cherish every day and not assume tomorrow, which is exactly what the scriptures say. And and like in Psalm 90, where where he says, uh, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. I feel like the Lord did that for me at an early age. Yeah. And those who've um, read your book, Crazy Love, I think the, the opening chapters of Crazy Love are, are quite sort of well known for this. That you're, you're reading this Christian book and it's quite unusual uh, for the opening pages of a Christian book for the author to say, basically, you could die at any moment. And God is literally <laughs> holding you, uh, you know, holding every breath in his hands. This isn't the way that most Christians arguably really think about their life. We're, we're not perhaps that focused on eternity or death being that real, are we? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the chapters, something I, I wrote, uh, you may die before you finish this chapter. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> and it's true because I've seen it. We don't know that day. We don't know that moment. And I've seen people pass into eternity in the most insane ways where you go, whoa, did that just happen? Is it true that you've even seen people whilst preaching uh, drop yes. down dead? 
Yes. I mean, not to freak you out, but I, I remember a, a friend of mine who was doing a radio interview. Oh, no. And he oh, nice. made the comment. He said, look, I could get on my motorcycle right after this interview, get on the 10 freeway, and someone will just curve into my lane, not even notice me, and it would be over. And that is exactly what happened afterwards. Oh, my goodness. It was unreal. Wow. I, I mean, life is just so unpredictable. Mm. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you process that though? Just just for yourself. I mean, with that particular example, do you find yourself asking questions of God, like what, why? I mean, why did He effectively predict His own death? I mean, that's that's this is a weird thing to get our heads around, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I I believe a hundred percent in the sovereignty of God. So you had like a million people listening to that show. And and basically him in some ways prophetically explain what was going to happen. I mean, how does that not impact everyone who is listening? And to me, I've always believed that anything that draws you closer to God is a good thing. Tragedy, whatever. Uh, one of the worst things that can happen is for life to be easy and comfortable to where you don't give thought to the things that really matter. And I believe it's Satan's plan to keep us focused on the things of the earth and the things that you can see, whereas scripture tells us to focus on the things that are unseen. So I, I just saw that as a blessing to many people. And in light of eternity, it's 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 one life. I mean, it's going to end for all of us any second. So at what point after becoming a Christian did you sense a kind of calling to, to ministry or to, to plant churches? Yeah, you know, it was... Uh, Gosh, I was probably 17 or 18 years old, and I was telling every one of my friends, everyone I could think of. I mean, I was going through our school yearbook and calling everyone I knew before they graduated to tell them about what Jesus had done. Um, because I thought to myself, if this is true about heaven and hell, then I need to tell everyone I can. And I guess I just never stopped. And so I really felt that calling because I thought, I don't know what else I want to do with my days. I know some people right now will be hearing this and hearing these stories and thinking, wow, Francis sounds a bit radical. And that's a word that's been used of you a few times. What do you think of that word when it's when it's used of yourself? <laughs> I think it's terrible because I, I look at my life compared to what I read in scripture and I just feel like I have such a long way to go and I'm striving for that. I'm wanting that. There's still so much fear in me. Uh, there's times when I'm a coward and I'm saying, God, no, change me, please. I don't want to be a coward. And it scares me when people put me on a pedestal because in some ways they treat me like, oh, he's unreachable or he's a radical. Um, which gives them permission then to live this lukewarm lifestyle uh, that doesn't stretch them. And that's my mm. biggest concern yeah. is for them to look at me like I'm an extremist when the truth is I'm so far still from the life that Christ wants us to live. So if you wouldn't call yourself a, a radical, because that's a terrible word, how would you describe, I guess, your calling? Is, th is there a form of words that you have you think this is kind of what I feel God has called me to do? Yeah, I'm trying to live a life that is congruent with New Testament Christianity. I see the way they live. I see the power. I see the amazing things that God did in their lives. And I'm saying, God, I want that. I want that. And we should all be in that place, not looking at those that are striving after that and, and thinking that they're uh, unique in some ways. But I'm just trying to... Uh, pursue everything I see in scripture and believe every part of it. So um, tell me a bit about Cornerstone, Cornerstone Church, and uh, tell me about the beginnings of that and kind of what that turned into. Well, Cornerstone Church was a church I started in Southern California, and that was uh, about 24 years ago. Um, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was just my wife and I uh, talking and I, I told her, gosh, I, I think I want to start my own church. I see all this fighting and I don't know where all the money goes. I, I just, what if we just had some people in our living room? 
and we just studied the Bible together, and we just sought Him, and, and when we worshiped, we really sang to Him. I just feel like that'd be better than so many of the other expressions of church I've been a part of. I just want that authenticity. So we started out of a living room, and it quickly grew, though, and so we did the normal church thing, which was, okay, let's rent a building, let's get a band, let's get childcare. And it just exploded to where thousands of people were coming every weekend, planted churches, and uh, um, started a college. It, it was gr- a great, great time. Baptisms every weekend. Good time. So I, I did that for uh, over 16 years. Yeah. As you say, you know, grew into, I guess, what people would describe as a as a mega church. And by all the kind of usual parameters that get used to speak of churches, you'd kind of call it successful, at least on the outside. And, you know, as you say, you saw people saved and baptized and healed. So the question, of course, comes, why did you leave it all behind? <laughs> well, there's there are so many different reasons um, a lot of it was just feeling like I wasn't living by faith anymore um, was part of it. I felt like, gosh, there's so many strong elders here, so many strong churches in the city. Let me go somewhere where it's more unreached. Um, another part of me just felt like, gosh, I've done everything I can in this city. Um, but a big part of it, too, was as I wrestled with the elders, we were just looking at Scripture and seeing so many commands we weren't obeying as a church. And we felt like we as leaders are accountable for that. And all of the one another's, the church was really built around a speaking gift and and a sermon, which which is really what a lot, maybe all you know, churches at that time were built around. And yet we would look at scripture and go, gosh, there should be so much more interaction. And we try to change the church, make it more focused on the one another's. Um, but it was just an uphill battle. And one of the questions that was asked was, you know, am I part of the problem? You know, do people want to come hear a sermon uh, rather than really use their spiritual gifts because I've trained them for that and they're used to my teaching? And so why don't I, you know, for me, consider moving on to a more unreached place and and starting something new that was reproducible, more like the underground church in China, something that didn't depend so much on me, but on the whole body of Christ. And so that's when we just thought, you know what, I think it's time to take a step of faith. Let's walk away and see where the Lord leads us. So as I understand it, part of that walking away was uh, you and your family went to went to Asia, went really all around the world um, and, and left the country entirely. So, so as well as talking a bit about that, I'd love to hear what did that mean for kind of what you left behind and the structures that were that were there? How did they respond and cope with that idea? Well, it's interesting when I announced it to the church, um, the vast majority of the people said, yeah, we knew it was coming. <laughs> I said, we've, we've known it for years. I was like, really? I haven't known it for years. It's only, <laughs> you know, been a couple months for me. But people said, we saw it in you that you would end up overseas somewhere. Something required more faith. Um, so it while it, I thought it was going to be surprising, my wife and I were both shocked at how unsurprising it was to people. Um, And so leaving the country really was part of me going, gosh, everyone thinks I'm so strange for doing this. Maybe I don't belong in this country because it seems like this is normal Christianity in other places. And so my wife was like, hey, let's let's sell everything and just jump on a plane and see where the Lord leads us. And uh, she was pregnant with our fifth kid at that point. And wow. so I thought, wow, if you're willing to do that, yeah, let's let's do it. Um, and so that's when we headed off for Asia, thinking maybe that's where God was calling us. Right. OK. Um, so obviously you're now back in America. So God wasn't necessarily calling you to Asia for, for the long term, at least. But but tell me about yeah. the time where you, how long were you away for and what did you see and what did you experience? Well, we were only away for a couple of months and uh, we saw amazing things, though, uh, you know, just the underground church, the passion of the people. We were in India and, and just met and saw the persecuted church and everything they endured. 
we're with orphans in Thailand and caring for them. And but but all the while we're seeing just this purity of faith in so many different people. Um, but what we learned over there was in a lot of ways, I was pretty useless over there. I don't know what I was <laughs> thinking. You know, sometimes in America we have this vision like, oh, if I go overseas, I can really help the people. But I didn't really speak the language. So I was more of a nuisance. And so while I learned and gained so much and I loved it and I did not want to come home, there came a point where I felt like I really felt like I had the Lord communicate to me that I was supposed to go back to the States and finish what I started, that I was uh, that I basically was afraid to start this new paradigm of the church and pursue this and and try to change the way we operate as the church. Um, And when I heard those words from the Lord, it still scared me. I'm like, gosh, pick someone else. This is too much. I I don't want to face it. I love it here. I don't even know how to tell my family that God's called us back to the U.S. because we were so happy overseas. But you know, you you have to obey what you believe the calling of the Lord is. And so that's how we came back to the States. And and how we landed in San Francisco was that my brother had an apartment that we could live in, a little one-bedroom apartment. And we thought, well, I don't know where else we're going to live, so let's just go there temporarily Yeah. until God calls us somewhere. Yeah. You, you talk about being called back to America and feeling like God's speaking to you and telling you you have, you have to go back. But what does that actually look like in practice? Because sometimes Christians will use this words of, you know, I felt called or God spoke to me. But, but in kind of real terms, what exactly was that? Yeah, I, and and understand, I come from a very conservative background, so when I feel like the Lord communicated to me at that point, that was a rare, rare thing. I mean, I, I was just walking with the Lord. In fact, uh, we were in Hong Kong at the time looking for apartments because my wife and I both felt like this is it. So we're looking at schools, we're pricing out apartments, which is ridiculously expensive. But um, it was in the midst of that, that during one of my times with the Lord, as I'm reading scripture, I don't even know how to explain it. But everything in me just knew, like he was asking me to go back. I, I It's not like I heard an audible voice. It's just it was one of those things that I, I thought, if I don't obey this, I really believe I'm disobedient to him. And I, uh, there were some things that he, he was showing me about just the way, you know, sometimes when you leave your country and you look back, you can see things more clearly. And as I look back, I realized, gosh, people really do idolize their families. Mm. It's so different, at least Christians do, compared to what I see in Scripture And then I thought, gosh, everything that God wanted of the church, this is possible. This can happen. And and so I really believe the Lord wanted me back for those two reasons, to get people to focus on the mission more than just their own families and to get people to focus on believing the church could be everything that it could be. And so that's why when I came back to the States, um, we eventually wrote You and Me Forever and now more recently, the letters to the church. And uh, because it's focused on those things, getting your family to be focused on ministry rather than one one another and getting the church to become everything that Christ wanted her to be. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and letters to the church, which you mentioned, and we'll talk a lot more about that as, as we go. How much of that book is basically you going to Asia and seeing the persecuted church around the world and, and basically just saying to the Western church, certainly the church in America, we need to learn a huge amount from the persecuted church. Their models of church are a lot closer to the New Testament than ours. How, how much of that kind of idea encapsulates really what you're getting at? Yeah, you know, it's it's a good point. I'm sure it influences every page, right? Because our, our experiences and what we've seen influence so much. And it, it showed me what was possible but I would say, uh, I don't know if you gave a percentage, five, 10 percent. I mean, it's it's 90 something percent what I read in Scripture. 
And I, I tried so hard in that book not to make it about experience, but about, look, here's what the word of God says. And these are not obscure passages. This is said over and over and over again. This is clear through the entirety of scripture that we've become pretty illiterate when it comes to scripture. And I'm seeing fewer and fewer people who read through the entirety of scriptures over and over again to really understand what he wants. So I try to give uh, the most biblically accurate picture of what Christ wanted of the church. There's a moment in the book where you talk about the conversations that you have with church leaders and you get these church leaders to list all of the things that their people might want from their church. And and often it's a certain style of music, it's good parking, coffee, age appropriate ministries, a well-communicated sermon. And then you ask these church leaders to list biblical commandments, what the Bible actually wants from church. And they say, well, love one another or look after widows and orphans or make disciples. Uh, And then you, you kind of ask these churches this fascinating question. You say, what would upset your people more if you as their leader failed to deliver from the first list and failed to give them age appropriate ministries and coffee and parking or do you think they'd be more upset if you failed to do things on the second list love one another look after widows and orphans and yeah this is such a, a striking idea it really resonated with me and i know many other people who have read the book how how did that idea first form in your head or you know to even do that as a kind of experiment and ask church leaders those things yeah, honestly, <laughs> um, we, we've been doing this with pastors that come in, you know, just getting them to say, what are people's expectations? Because everyone goes to a church building with expectations. I mean, they expect a church building, first of all, but they expect the 40 minute sermons and listing all that out. And really, it's one of our other pastors that led them through that exercise. And I thought, wow, that is brilliant. And I'm going to start doing it. Um, so so I really have to give credit to that other pastor who's more of a teacher. Um, and we've talked through these things before, just saying, gosh, people really get angry over things that are not biblical commands. And yet there are so many biblical commands that it doesn't seem to bother them that they love one another deeply. I mean, that's that is that's the premise of the church is, look, they'll know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And when Jesus says, look, this is my command. This is my new command. I'm giving you this new command. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. That's huge. That's God saying, this is what I want of the church. I want you to love one another. This is the new command. I want you to love them as much as I have loved you. I'm about to die for you. We're we're, we're just breaking bread and showing you for communion for the first time. And as you hold that bread, as you, you think about my blood, I want you to look around at the people in the room and I want you to love them to that extreme. This is the command for the church. Almighty God commands it. But do we pick a church based upon that? Do we look and go, gosh, this is really bothering me. I don't love the people, you know, deeply from my heart, like Christ loved me, and they don't love me that way. (laughs) These are major things. And if we don't see that in the church, it ought to bother us. And we must do everything we can to strive for that. Mm. Yeah, there's an, there's another section where you, you pick up, you mentioned some of this already about our attitude towards the Bible, uh, which is interesting because I guess every church out there would say, oh, yes, we believe the Bible. But when it comes to actually living that out, it's quite another thing. I mean, you talk about how we will you know, talk about oh, this preacher is a great communicator and we kind of add lots of things to the text and we kind of come up with our analogies and we and we preach. But you point out, actually, there's plenty of times in the New Testament where it talks about just read scripture as it is in front of the congregation. And, and certainly most churches in this country, they might have a short reading, but really it's a short reading. And then the meat of it is someone unpacking it and preaching and adding their own thoughts to it. And you seem to be suggesting uh, a couple of points in the book that another way of teaching the Bible is literally just reading it and, and putting less emphasis uh, on kind of unpacking it and preaching it. Is is that correct? Yeah. And I am not saying that we shouldn't preach and praise God for teachers. This is commanded. I'm just saying there is a power to the word. 
you know, like Paul tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So it's it's all of it. You do preach, you do teach, and you publicly read the Scriptures. Um, I think about a revelation in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He's saying, if you want to be blessed, then read this book out loud. And the people who listen to it as you read out loud, they will be blessed. So here we have in Scripture a promise from Jesus. You want to be blessed? Like those of you who are listening right now, do you want to be blessed by God today? If so, he tells you how to do it. Read the book of Revelation out loud to other people. But then who's ever done that? You know, here's scripture telling us, blessed is the one who reads it out loud. Blessed are those who hear and obey it. But somehow in our mind, we think, well, you can't just read that. Uh, you can't just read it out loud. Not the book of Revelation. Well, <laughs> what if we misinterpret it? Yeah. And I just feel like that thinking is so satanic. God promised, just read it out loud and you'll be blessed. And so we've done things like that in the church. And it, it's true. Yeah. It's such a blessing. Well, that brings us to the end of part one of today's show. But do join us again right after this to hear more from my guest today, Francis Chan. After growing his Californian congregation from 30 members to 6,000, Francis Chan turned his back on the American megachurch model. Look at churches. There are so many who exist that are not making disciples. People are not getting baptized, and yet they're spending a fortune. How is it then that the underground church in China grew to 100 million people? Inspired by churches in Asia, the acclaimed preacher believes he's now promoting a more authentic expression of Christianity. Read the full interview with Francis Chan exclusively in this month's Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine and my guest today is Francis Chan. You can actually read this interview in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. It's our cover story for the month of February. If you'd like to get the print edition of the magazine, which includes this interview, then head to premierchristianity.com and request a free sample copy of our latest issue. At the end of part one, Francis was just talking about how he believes we need to be reading scripture in church and he wasn't doing down preaching. He believes that's important as well. But he was also highlighting commands in the New Testament, which he says instructs us as believers to simply read the scriptures. Let's pick up on the rest of my conversation. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people would agree with that and they sometimes think, well, why do we always get so complicated about stuff? And I think a lot of people are really inspired by, by you, Francis, and in, in that you, you read it and you go out and you do it and it doesn't have to be complicated. Um, but of course, at the same time, even as I'm saying this, I'm reminded, well, you know, you were involved in the, in the founding of a theological college, which, you know, requires a lot of in-depth study. So is it yeah. hard to kind of hold those two ideas in, in tension that, that yes we want to be really simple and just live out what the book says and yet we also do kind of value deeper study and going back to the original languages absolutely and i i also think that there are uh, people that are very gifted at that i i don't consider myself one of them i i try but there are just things i cannot understand and we have to be okay with that i, I mean if there's pastors listening don't feel like you have to be that scholar. Um, God has given us different gifts and praise God for those people who have these just brilliant minds. But I, I also thank the Lord for limiting my knowledge sometimes and going, gosh, you you somehow, Lord, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the way that I'm made. Uh, I used to be frustrated with it, but now I go, you know what, Lord? I appreciate the simple things, and Scripture says you use these ordinary, uneducated men, and uh, you you turn the world uh, upside down, right side up through these men, 
And so, God, I, I thank you for whatever you revealed to me. I think sometimes we overemphasize a person's IQ, uh, their intelligence. And when you read scripture, you realize that's not the way it was in the New Testament. Um, but we all need to be diligent in studying the scriptures. And uh, many of these ideas, whether we're talking about the importance of reading scripture aloud, um, we haven't had time to go into the importance of valuing kids and not just sort of shutting them off in their own kids' ministries. You know, all of these ideas are more unpacked in your latest book, Letters to the Church, out now published by David C. Cook. And it's a, it's a superb book. I, I just got so much out of it, really appreciated the kind of huge amounts of challenge, really on every page, there's some really challenging thoughts to, to grapple with. Um, but at the end of the book, Francis, you kind of do a bit of a, a big reveal, finally, at the end. And you kind of give us a bit of a, a sneak uh, sort of preview into well, where's all of this heading there's a lot of kind of really interesting theory and here's where the church might have gone a bit wrong but what's the answer and in the final chapter you kind of hint at, at, at a possible perhaps partial solution to some of these ideas and it comes down to really doing church on a smaller scale do you want to unpack a bit a bit of that for us yeah i, I really wanted to be careful in that section of the book because I never want to put myself up as, you know, here is the ultimate example. I mean, while I want to say, you know, like Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ, I think when it comes to the church, there needs to be some sort of flexibility because there's not a biblical, um, there, there's, there's not an absolute biblical construct on the exact structure sure. of yeah. how our gatherings should look. Yeah. So I want to give people a peek into what we were doing and how we were expressing these biblical convictions in San Francisco and in the Bay Area because of our, our understanding of scripture. But I wanted to be very careful not to say this is the way everyone should do it. My hope is that people could learn from what we've learned, and I hope they come up with an even more beautiful expression of the church. But uh, we have learned, I think, primarily how much God can use every person in the body and how we have to spread out the leadership and how the great movements around the world are not from one person preaching to thousands, but just by mobilizing hundreds and thousands of believers to trust the Word of God and trust the Holy Spirit. And uh, and, and I really yeah. believe that's the only way we're going to to reach the yeah. world. Yeah, I mean, so, so as, I, as I understand it, what's really interesting about this model is it, it doesn't require a big building that can be expensive. It doesn't yeah. require you to spend a lot of money paying pastors, which again, most church models have some sort of system for that. And so instead, you, you kind of have a small group, maybe house church model. I don't, I don't yeah. know if that's the right terminology, but you've got people meeting in homes and the, yeah. the pastor or the leaders sort of doing their own quote unquote normal job. So they're not relying on a salary. And, and what that means is, any money that can that is given in to this church can all be spent on missions and serving the poor so yes. you know i guess for some people they're thinking oh i'm familiar with this this is a kind of house church model that i think in this country was quite popular in the 1970s for, for other mm. people i guess for most people this this is completely new because it's certainly not the dominant expression of church in this country at the moment yeah and, and a lot of that comes from uh, our, our just desire. It's like, gosh, how can I get everyone? Supposedly, Scripture says that every believer has a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. And I think, wow, every person can manifest the Holy Spirit of God. That's a big, big deal that if you're listening and you're a believer, you have a gift for the body. And, and and the body needs you desperately. It's not just, oh, I'm good at folding bulletins. I'm good at, <laughs> uh, you know, just this earthly thing. But it's a supernatural. Like God will move through you. And so as a leader, I need to mobilize that type of power. And so we just found like in the smaller expressions, because how can we all do that if there's, a, you know, a thousand people in the room? It would take all week. You know, so how do you do that? We had to break it down. So that was one thing that motivated these smaller expressions. But then the other thing was the unreached people, the unreached people in the world. This is our mission. We have to get to those unreached people. And a lot of them 
are in restricted countries where you can't go over there and build a building and call it a church. It has to be through lay people who know how to work a job and go to these other countries and work there and build relationships and make disciples in their homes. And so if we don't experiment and learn about these different ways to express the church, we will never reach the unreached. Mm. This is, and this is our calling. This is our duty. And so for us, we just felt like, gosh, the current system. In fact, I read just yesterday, like if you, if you look at how much we spend as the evangelical church in America and how many people got baptized last year, it costs on average $1.5 million per baptism. No way. I'm like, that's impossible. There's no <laughs> way. But it was from a really legitimate wow. source. I still can't believe it. <laughs> but how are we supposed to survive like that? And, yeah. and this one pastor was talking about, well, they, they got it down to like 5000 a head, you know, but... If you look at churches, there are so many who exist that are not making disciples. People are not getting baptized, and yet they're spending a fortune. And I'm just going, how is it then that the underground church in China grew to 100 million people without any you know, without super preachers or yeah. without a budget yeah. uh, because they use the everyday person? Yeah. I mean, the budgets are eye-watering. And I guess for a lot of people who go to church, they're probably not even familiar with them. But, you know, just as an example, I spoke to a church leader in London recently and, you know, his church budget, I mean, it is a big church, but even so, his, his annual budget's £14 million. And you, you do just think this is a this is a huge amount. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, that church is very active in, in reaching people. But but like you say, if you were to sort of do quite a, a strict sort of economic breakdown of, of what these things cost, that it's a huge amount of money per person. And I guess that, yeah, the way you're doing it is... Um, is, is very different. I, I was very struck by a story you tell, I think this happened in China, where the underground church was thriving and some of the rules were relaxed and so some churches were able to hold more kind of typical Sunday services in buildings that we might recognise. But, but according to your story, it was actually detrimental to the health of the church when they switched to that model. Do you want to unpack some of that a bit more and exactly what happened? Yeah, it, it was from me speaking to some of the pastors in Beijing and Shanghai who now had uh, larger congregations, and they were asking me, they're going, gosh, are people used to do anything for the gospel? They were so, you know, if we use that word radical, they just, they were sold out, they're sharing the gospel. But once we started doing these services, they said, we didn't see it coming, but they became so comfortable just showing up that it became their pattern. Now that we're trying to mobilize them, they don't want to do anything anymore. And they're saying, what do we do? And I'm going, I don't have the answer for that. <laughs> but one of the churches, it grew so big that the government shut it down again. And the pastor was telling me that was the greatest thing for the church because we we, we went back to our original DNA and the church is flourishing once again. And But lately, you know, in the last year or so, the persecution has arisen like much, much more strongly in the church in China, and they're having to go back underground again. And I think that's a that's a wonderful thing. Can you perceive a moment coming in the near future in America where perhaps not the extent of what we're talking about in other parts of the world, but some form of persecution begins to happen in, in the near future in America and, and the model that you're suggesting suddenly becomes more attractive and workable for people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know of many leaders that think that America is going to be the same in five years. When we see the trajectory, I mean, it's certainly not the same as it was five years ago. I mean, people aren't thinking about, do you realize how volatile our system is of, of our church gatherings, how much money it requires? I mean, if there's an economic downturn, how are we going to survive that? All it takes is one law that changes um, the, the, the tax breaks that we get. And so many churches, the Bible colleges would all have to shut their doors. And so when you look at the LGBT agenda and, 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 and whatever else and what's going on in the government, you just go, how can I continue with a system that is so dependent on 
so much money and so many breaks from the government. Uh, that can't be the future. Too much has changed. And I don't know that it's going to get to the point of persecution. Um, it certainly seems like it's headed that direction. But th people need to realize when that happens, it's too late to jump to another model. I mean, this is exactly what happened in, in, the, in the Soviet Union. When communism came in, they shut down the big cathedrals and the churches died because the people didn't know how to make disciples. They didn't know how to share the gospel on their own. And that was different from China when communism came in because there was this base of disciples who knew how to make disciples and they could go underground and multiply. And so you have this vast, you know, contrast between the Soviet Union, what happened to Christianity there versus what happened to China and how it thrived. That's why I'm saying, look, we have to start preparing for this. People need to know how to study the word for themselves and not depend on a 30 minute sermon. People need to know how to make disciples and not depend on their pastor to share the gospel for them. Uh, we have to learn how to gather in different ways rather than saying, I need to find a church that has all of these things for me. Other, otherwise, I can't survive. I mean, we need to strengthen ourselves now while we have the opportunity. And so I believe that's part of my calling. Yeah. You, uh, you come across, Francis, as a very joyful person. And, yeah. um, and I know as well that you've uh, you have experienced, as we talked about in some of your earlier story and some of your life, also experienced, you know, fair, highly level of suffering. And I want to talk about that concept of joy in suffering, because I think I mean, there's a whole chapter in your book on suffering and how, you know, some churches seem to teach that if you follow Jesus, everything will get better. Whereas actually, the you know, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to deny yourself. And suffering seemed to be part and parcel of what it meant to be the early church. So I would love to hear some thoughts on you about this idea of yes as a christian you probably will experience suffering and yet there is great joy to be found in that suffering yeah, yeah. you know first peter 4 12 says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So this is, this is the New Testament teaching over and over again. Jesus is rejoice in it. And when you believe in eternity, then you really can rejoice through the difficult times. I mean, recently, you know, I have people say things about me and and, uh, you know, some do it publicly on, on the Internet, some that I've loved and given my life to. And then they'll they'll say something so untrue, so hurtful. And my wife even asked me, hey, is so and so still saying stuff publicly about you. I said, yeah. And and she goes to see mention you by name. I said, yes. And she goes, well, that's good. At least you get credit for it. <laughs> and uh, I, but it, it's she was just saying, gosh, you get reward. When people slander you by name, wow. that's a good thing. And I love that my wife would say something like that because it's so biblical. Wow. It's like this life is so short. And if we take Jesus' words literally, then when someone slanders you for something that's so biblical, then you get rewarded for that. And to truly rejoice, that's a gift from God. And I will say, I was I did not grow up a joyful person. <laughs> I... I I, I remember relatives looking at me as a kid and just going, why are you never happy? You always have this sad look. And, and now I just feel like, gosh, there's so many days where I just wonder if anyone on the earth is happier than I am. Uh, when, when, Jesus, when God talks about this joy inexpressible and this joy and rejoicing, through trials. It's like, I am so grateful God has done this in my life. This is a new work. And I really do rejoice at betrayal now. Yeah. I really can rejoice at, uh, you know, at slander or whatever, because it's what God wants. Uh, I get to taste a little bit of what Christ went through. And, and so that when he, when his glory is revealed, 
I can rejoice and know that I suffered with my brothers and sisters, at least to some degree. So I guess with that in mind then, I did want to ask you, what has been the, the best day of your ministry and what's been the worst? Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. I, I have no idea how to answer that. Um, you, you know, let me answer it this way. My son-in-law was telling me the other day, uh, you know, because he's a hard worker, but he every week makes sure that he goes away for hours to be alone with the Lord. He just won't give up that Sabbath time. And he's been teaching people how to do that. And he says, you know, I think that's the greatest joy in my life when I see other people enjoy spending hours alone with the Lord. And I and I can teach them that. And because then I see that they actually now are deeply in love with him and they can't get enough of him. And so I, I guess I would agree with him. I go, gosh, when I see that. Every time I see that, it doesn't get old. I'm not talking about people coming forward after an emotional message and, you know, saying they want to go to heaven. I'm talking about when people really get it and they really fall in love with Jesus and you see them just enjoying him, loving him, and they just pursue him on their own. Whenever I hear of that happening and someone getting it like that, uh, that's just a great, great day. So to measure what was the greatest day of that, I don't know. Um, maybe the most difficult. Uh, I think it was when I was back at Cornerstone and I went through a really rough spell because I'm reading all these things in Scripture and I want the church to become that. And I'm trying to preach these things and yet I... I don't know how to lead the church in that direction. And then people are getting angry at me from both sides. And and it's when you love these people and you're trying your best and you're frustrated because you know you, you don't have the wisdom to lead them well or whatever the, the, I was going through. I It just, it really hurt. Um, I was frustrated with myself that I couldn't lead the church into what I saw in scripture. Um, and then I was just hurt by people that I loved and I thought, gosh, I'm trying, I'm sorry. Uh, and so it was just kind of this two way thing of knowing I was failing and yet not knowing the answer. Uh, those, those were real tough days yeah, for me. Sure. Uh, and what is the relationship now between you and Cornerstone and the leaders there? Well, there's, you know, there, there's not really much. Um, I mean, everything's good. It's it's fine. Um, uh, I think there was a period where uh, I think they wanted me to keep some distance from the church. Uh, you know, so I spoke a lot initially. I'd go back and speak and it was good. Um, but I think it was important that I I distanced myself so the new leadership could really take ownership of the church because it got weird. Like when I would come back, old faces would come back and, uh, sure. you know, just yeah. to see me and it would disrupt. And so I, I, I think for the sake of the kingdom, it was good to have some distance. Um, but I, there's no bad blood on my side. I feel like everything's uh, good and um, it's certainly different there. And, um, the new leadership has taken root, but I, I think I think it's honoring to the Lord the way that the relationship's gone. I wanted to, to ask you a couple of kind of wider questions, I guess. Um, I ask a lot of American Christians this question. Around the world, evangelical, which I'm sure is a term that, that at least in the past, if not still now, you, you'd have a measure of um, uh, you know fondness towards or you'd describe yourself as an evangelical. I'd love to know, is that a word you still use? And the reason I ask that is because some people are telling me that this word has become almost corrupted by politics in America. And now if you use the word evangelical, it tends to mean who you vote for rather than what you believe yes. about Jesus and the Bible. So, so help me understand that. Is that a word that you'd still apply to yourself? I I apply it to myself, but not publicly. Uh, for that very <laughs> I've reason, got bad I news rarely... for you, Francis. This is a public interview. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but it's in the UK. No one here is going to listen to it. Um, 
Yeah, I I never describe myself, or I rarely would describe myself as that for those reasons. Sadly, it has um, become this ugly word out here, and it's just become distorted people's connotation of that word. So, yeah, I run from it. I I try to just say, look, I'm just a human being trying so hard to trust the word of God, the Bible, over my own thoughts, over the way I think, over the way I would naturally go to believe Isaiah 55, that his thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not mine, but his are over mine. So trying to and by that, I'm trying to teach people that we walk around in America with so much arrogance. Everyone tweets, everyone blogs, everyone wants their voice to be heard. And I'm trying to explain to them, I'm trying to shut my own voice even out of my own head <laughs> and trust his words above mine. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. How you label me for doing that yeah. is up to you. Sure. I'm just trying to be a person that follows the word. So that's yeah. that's the way I describe myself sure. to other people. Yeah. And, and I noticed that, you know, I don't think I don't think you're on Twitter anymore. Has, has there been a sort of removing of yourself from some of that sometimes more toxic yeah. toxic environment of social media? Yeah, I, I've actually never been on Twitter. I've oh, okay. never, yeah. had, <laughs> never had a Facebook account. There have been a lot of fake ones that pretend they're me. And, <laughs> and then the next guy will say, this is the real Francis Chan. <laughs> you know, uh, I have never tweeted. I, I don't even know how. Um, so Best of all. I, it, it just, when social media first started happening, Gosh, it was a difficult time. It was during that whole time that I was going through everything at Cornerstone. It was weird when suddenly you have thousands of people stating their opinion about you publicly. And and you just thought, what? Whether it was positive or negative, my soul didn't know how to react to that. Times when I got so arrogant because you're hearing all these people saying good things. Other times I would get angry and hurt because you you hear these extreme statements spoken about you. Uh, and so I just need to stay away from that world for the sake of my own soul sure. because you start saying things uh, based upon how you think people will react yeah. rather than saying things because they're true and biblical and it's what God has called you yeah. to say. In fact, I heard a preacher say the other day, he goes, many of you are preaching for the absence of criticism rather than for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And I thought, oh, that is a trap we can fall into. Mm. What can I say to please people? Yeah. What can I say so I don't get criticized and have to answer everyone rather than saying, Lord, I will say whatever you tell me to say mm. because I'm here to please you and I don't care what they say about me. Yeah, and, and with that in mind, I wanted to ask you about one of your older books just briefly um, because you know, you're know you not afraid to tackle the, the harder subjects and it, it doesn't get much harder for many people than the topic of hell. Uh, you wrote this yeah. book, Raising Hell, um, which came out shortly after Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, yeah. which of course was very well known and controversial. Rob Bell was kind of yeah. hinting at, if not arguing for universalism, this idea that one day perhaps God might save everyone. And your book, you know, you, you said, I remember you said at the beginning, we're going to just try and see what the Bible says and follow where the Bible leads and, and you felt and you and you co-authored this with Preston Sprinkle and it seems like the two of you felt by the end of the book that you you did believe in the traditional Christian view which is that some people yeah. who die without knowing Christ will, will suffer eternally uh, conscious torment in hell what's what's been interesting I guess since then is that the Preston Sprinkle your, your co-author seems to have, yeah. have changed his mind actually and moved much more towards a third position which is sometimes known as annihilationism this idea that actually if you you die without Christ then the part of your punishment might actually be to, to cease to exist and, and I guess yeah. for some Christians it's a kind of if I can use this word a a bit more of a palatable view of hell because you think well at least this person won't have to eternally suffer and actually part of their punishment in hell might just be the the end of their life um mm-hmm. and it's just quite an interesting dynamic for, for two people to write a book and say one thing and then the you know one of the one of those two people to kind of move in a different direction so i just love to hear a kind of update from you i mean would you still kind of hold by pretty much everything you wrote in that book and and, and how has yeah. that kind of gone I do still hold to it. And I remember Preston struggling with that when he was, when we were studying it. And he says, gosh, there were a lot of people who believed in 
this annihilation um, throughout history, which surprised him. That was his, I didn't realize how many people took that view, but as we studied, he just felt like, gosh, but if I just take the Bible literally, it just seems like there are too many passages that seem that, that show a an actual punishment um, rather than annihilationism. So, um, and I would agree with that, but we both struggled just because we felt like, gosh, uh, it just seems severe. Now, when I read the scriptures, though, now I'm going, gosh, but there are a lot of passages in scripture that are severe and not like me. Just like the verse that I mentioned earlier, like God's ways are not like mine. And we have to take into account that we live in a time when people don't believe in any type of punishment being good, um, that God cannot punish and be good. He cannot pour out his wrath on anyone and be good. And so to believe that there's an, an end um, with no punishment, no matter how extreme your ways were, how evil they were, it just doesn't seem to, uh, I mean, I get that it's palatable and so much easier just to believe, okay, so either you end and uh, it's nice, it's, it's just you cease to exist, um, yeah, bummer, you don't get to, you know, uh, participate in these eternal things. Absolutely, that's a big, big loss, um, just the loss of existence. However, gosh, the wrath of God, just like the love of God, it is so extreme. When I read through the entire Bible, you've got to understand over and over and over in Scripture, Every prophet's job was, look, here's the blessing if you pursue him. Here's the cursing if you don't. Um, you know, they get on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Okay, you guys say, here's the blessings if we follow God. Here's the curses if we don't. I mean, Jesus, blessed are you. Woe are to you. You know, revelation. Look, here's the great, here's the horrible. Uh, it's And yet in the preaching today, Man, now it feels, at least from my perspective, 90 something percent is just preaching one side of the story. And I even had friends say, yeah, I'm not really called to preach the other side. Just the, and I'm going, gosh, all through history, we've been called to give equal time to the blessings and the cursings. And yet nowadays we don't want to talk about the wrath of God, which I'm not ashamed of. His wrath is way beyond mine. The words he uses are so intense. And so just as I don't love like Jesus does, um, I don't have an anger like he does either. I don't hate sin like he does either. And I think all of these truths um, or lack of these truths in our lives and the lack of the emphasis uh, and giving equal time to these things in our day and age cause our hearts to want to lessen um, the severity of disobeying God. Um, and so I think all of that affects how we interpret Scripture. Mm. Well, we're sadly very nearly out of time, Francis, but it's been wonderful to talk. Just like to finish, um, actually, by um, asking a bit about your family, because I understand you've, you've been quite the, uh, the sort of spokesperson for adoption in particular. I think there's a famous quote of yours, actually, that, that does around sometimes about how, uh, as Christians, we shouldn't be praying, oh, should I adopt or not? But isn't shouldn't that be a default, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and that seems to be something very close to your heart. So I'd love to hear a bit about what family looks like for you at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, family is really crazy for me because uh, I have seven children. Um, only one of those is adopted. And, um, you know, I have a grandchild now, but I still have a three-year-old son wow. at home and um, who's biological. And we're always just open. We're always just saying, Lord, we... Um, we want we want to fill our house up. We we want to care for those who don't have parents. We've taken in different people, and sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's just very difficult. It's a maybe blessing in disguise. But um, uh, we really encourage our people to just always be looking. Uh, we don't see in Scripture this right to privacy 
like right. my house belongs to me. Right. Yeah. Um, but the whole idea of hospitality is opening up to strangers. So we are constantly just trying to surrender and saying, God, where do you want us to live? Who do you want to live with us? Um, we want to be able to do anything and we want to keep living by faith no matter how old we get because too many people, as they get older, they play it safer. And I think that's ridiculous because as you're getting closer to the end, you should be more extreme and more excited to sacrifice for the kingdom. I'm Sam Hales and you have been listening to my conversation with Francis Chan. I do hope you enjoyed that interview. We've also written it up for the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine. If you're not already a subscriber and you want to have a look at what the magazine is like, including that interview with Francis, then why not request a free sample copy of the latest issue? Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, type your address in and we will send you free of charge the latest issue of the mag. We don't ask for anything in return whatsoever. But if you did want to give us a rating and a review of this podcast, that would be massively appreciated so we can get the word out to more people. We're publishing a brand new interview with a leading Christian every single week here on the Profile Podcast. Loads more great stuff coming for you in the coming weeks. So do check that out. We'll see you next time.